your listeners may have seen the British House of Commons on TV when it's full, MPs you know, shout, and it's very difficult sometimes to make yourself heard you know, at the best of times. This is the atmosphere that these first women were walking into. And it's hard to think now what it must have been like for Asta as the only woman to walk in there on day one and to sit there and make any impression at all. Asta was a society woman. She could have worn anything she wanted to wear, but she didn't want her clothes to be a distraction. So she designed her own parliamentary uniform, sort of designed to be a bit like a man's suit, black and white, and a plain black hat. And that's what she wore when she entered the House of Commons because this was her job and she wanted what she said and did to be the important thing. That's Dr. Mari Takianagi, senior archivist at the Parliamentary Archives in London, England, speaking about the first generation of women to take seats in the House of Commons. Among these political trailblazers were Lady Nancy Astor, Margaret Winteringham, and Thelma Kaslett Keir. In addition to helping to crack Britain's political glass ceiling, these three women shared a spiritual commitment to Christian science, the religion founded by Mary Baker Eddy. I'm Jonathan Eder, Programs Manager at the Mary Baker Eddy Library, and I'm so pleased to welcome you to this two-part episode of Seekers and Scholars, titled Among the First to Stand, Christian Science and Women in Parliament. Part one features my full conversation with Dr. Takianagi, in which we explore the careers of Nancy Astor, Margaret Winteringham, and Thelma Kaslett Keir as part of the larger story of the groundbreaking work and experience of the first women members of Parliament. In fact, Lady Astor and Margaret Winteringham were the first two women to take seats in the House of Commons. Dr. Takianagi's work at the Parliamentary Archives gives her unique insight and access into the political history of these women. Mari is also a historian. Her doctoral thesis from King's College London was titled Parliament and Woman, circa 1900 to 1945. She is also co-leader and co-curator of Voice and Vote, Women's Place in Parliament, an exhibition opening at the Houses of Parliament on June 27, 2018. In part two, my guest will be independent scholar Robin Harrigan. We'll explore her research and writing on these early women parliamentarians, building upon this discussion with Mari Takianagi. If I can take you back 100 years... The First World War was just finishing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, many millions of men had died and many women had sort of stepped into the breach, working in all sorts of areas in society that uh, they hadn't done before during the First World War. And right at the end of the war, the act is passed that allows some women to vote. And the act that allowed women to stand as MPs is actually a separate act, which followed months later. So um, the act that allowed women to vote allowed women to vote if they were over the age of 30 and if they met minimum property qualifications. And the idea behind this was to make sure that women didn't outnumber men in the electorate. Mm. But this same consideration didn't apply to members of parliament. So the act that allowed women to become MPs actually didn't have any sort of special age or property requirements. So women could actually stand to be MPs from the age of 21, the same as men, and without any property qualifications. So um, in a sense, it's a much more sort of a equal piece of legislation than the Voting Act was. The act that allowed women to become MPs was rushed through right at the end of 1918 in order that women could stand at the general election at which women could also vote, which was December 1918. No women were actually elected and took their seats in 1918. The first woman to be elected, Constance Markovich, never took her seat because she was a member of Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin MPs don't take their seats at Westminster. And so actually, it's not till a year later that Lady Astor is elected. 
and she's elected in a by-election in Plymouth Sutton in 1919. And her husband was previously MP for the seat. And he had to stand down when he became a member of the House of Lords when his father died and uh, his wife stepped into his shoes. People might have thought at the time that this would be short term or temporary. But in fact, she held that seat from 1919 all the way through to 1945 when she stood down. So uh, not only was she the first woman to take her seat, but she was actually a very long running MP indeed. She was in the House of Commons for a very long time. Mm. Uh, Saw a lot of things happen in that time, including another world war and uh, had many achievements along the way. So back in 1919, Parliament had no idea how many women might show up soon, where to put them, what to do with them. There weren't toilets, there was no office space. And uh, eventually what they did was they set up one room in Parliament. They called it the Lady Members Room. Mm -hmm. And it was fairly sparsely furnished, a sort of table and chairs with panelling. And uh, when Astra arrived, she had it all to herself initially. And then about 18 months or so later, Margaret Winteringham arrived, another one of the women that you're particularly interested in. Um, and she was a liberal. Astor was a conservative. So they belonged to different political parties, um, but they were both women. And at the time, that was more important to the parliamentary authorities. So they put them in the same room to share. And then a couple of years later, the first Labour Party women are elected and they are put in the same room as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because basically gender Trump party. And if you're a woman, you're expected to share this one small room. And women go on being elected over the years, including uh, Thelma Casley, and they just keep on adding them, adding them to this room until there are more women MPs than there are desks, and they're expected just to sit on the floor and do their work there or go out in the corridor and have meetings there. So the physical environment in Parliament was not inviting. And then, of course, additionally, there's the atmosphere inside the House of Commons chamber. Maybe your American uh, listeners may have seen the British House of Commons on TV It's a very loud, boisterous (laughs) place, even today. There's a lot of noise when it's full, uh, MPs shout, and it's very difficult sometimes to make yourself heard at the best of times. This is the atmosphere that these first women were walking into. And it's hard to think now what it must have been like for Asta as the only woman to walk in there on day one Mm. to find a seat because they don't get allocated seats. They have to find their own seats and to sit there and make any impression at all. Astor was a society woman. She could have worn anything she wanted to wear, but she didn't want her clothes to be a distraction, which I think is really interesting, given the sort of pressures on female politicians today about what they wear. So she designed her own parliamentary uniform, sort of <laughs> designed to be a bit like a man's suit, black and white, wow. and, a, and a plain black hat. And that's what she wore when she entered the House of Commons, because this was her job, and she wanted what she said and did to be the important things, and she didn't want what she wore to become the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's, I think, an interesting insight into sort of her attitude and her approach, her professionalism, in fact. As she was quite a maverick in Parliament, Astor. She, she said what she um, thought. She was quite rude at times. She had very little patience for our rather arcane parliamentary procedures and political intrigues, and she was just... She was there to represent her constituents and particularly she was there to represent women because women from all over the country wrote to Asta. They saw her as their MP. Mm. Her postbag, her mailbag was just absolutely enormous and she had to employ many <laughs> secretaries to answer them all. This correspondence is now at the University of Reading Special Collections Archive. It's just full of letters from all over the country, school children, working class women from everywhere, as I say, seeing her as their MP. What were her major political achievements, would you say? Astor had many causes. One of the issues that Lady Astor felt most passionately about was temperance, uh, that is to say control of alcohol. 
And one of her greatest achievements was to get the first ever private members bill passed by a woman MP. That is to say, a piece of legislation was passed that wasn't introduced by the government, but by her as a backbench ordinary MP. And this was about sale of alcohol at 18s, um, banning it. And although the law has changed a bit in the 100 years since then, it's still enshrined in UK law that you can't sell alcohol to under 18s. And so this is a legacy of hers that is still around today. And I think she'll be very proud of it. But in terms of gender equality, her causes that she fought for over the years, particularly things like um, equal franchise, so the equalising the voting rights, many of those were achieved too. Though Asta didn't have any background in the women's suffrage movement before she was elected as an MP, as soon as she arrived at Westminster, she completely embraced their cause. Mm. The women's suffrage organisations, after being a little bit hesitant maybe initially, sort of completely adopted her. Um, and she was their champion in Parliament on just about any issue, as well as uh, equalising the voting age, which was uh, achieved in uh, 1928. Took 10 years, but you know they got there in the end. Many other pieces of legislation were passed in the 10 years after the First World War, which affected women's lives and gender equality on issues such as uh, pensions for widows and orphans, guardianship of children, uh, adoption law, property inheritance, all of these things. Legislation was passed on all of them. It wasn't just down to the early women MPs, but it's certainly significant that there were some women, even just a few in Parliament. Although the numbers of these women MPs was uh, small, the contribution is, uh, is out of proportion. Margaret Wintringham, uh, another of the women that you're particularly interested in, one of her causes was equal guardianship of children. Mm-hmm. One of these things that sounds completely strange to us today, but if you go back in time, a couple of hundred years, women had no rights of guardianship of their own children in this country. Guardianship was vested in the father. And it started to change in the 19th century when a woman called Caroline Norton got the first uh, Custody of Infants Act passed in 1839. But it was still very limited and restricted to custody of very young children. And so it wasn't until 1925 you finally get Equal Guardianship Act passed, which enshrines in law that men and women have equal guardianship of their children. And the paramount issue is the welfare of the child and not the rights of one or the other parents. And this is one of those things that certainly Astor was in favour of. And Margaret Wintringham particularly fought on, sat on committees on and promoted in Parliament. She lost her seat shortly before the Act was passed. But the speeches in Parliament clearly show all the politicians acknowledging her as one of the driving forces behind this Act. Yeah, that's wonderful. Are, are you able to speak at all to Thelma Kasselet Keir's work? Yes, so Kasselet Keir was elected a bit later than um, Astor and Wintringham. Wintringham had long lost her seat by the time Thelma was elected in uh, 1931. But certainly uh, many of the causes that Thelma Kasselet Keir fought for were absolutely the same ones held dear by both Astor and Wintringham. And Astor was still there, of course, in Parliament throughout this time. Equal pay was one of those things that Kasselet Keir was very much in favour of. And this sort of came to a head during the Second World War when she tried to amend a bill in Parliament to introduce equal pay for teachers in 1944. And this initially passed and it looked like we might have equal pay for at least one sector, which hadn't been the case before. But uh, Winston Churchill, who was Prime Minister, of course, was completely against this. And he made the issue into a matter of confidence in the government, set up a vote in Parliament so that if the vote was lost, the government would fall and we were still at war. This is 1944. Mm. And very few MPs would uh, vote against the government in this situation, including Kasselet Keir herself. So she reluctantly voted against it herself and equal pay had to wait a little bit longer. Winston Churchill was a very great war leader, of course, but he was never a supporter of feminist causes. He opposed right. equal franchise uh, to the bitter end in 1928, for example. Wow. And uh, this equal pay amendment is another example of that. So tell us a little bit about this 
exhibition that you've been uh, curating and, and leading on voice and vote and women's place in parliament. Just a little bit about it and what people who might be listening to this podcast who have an interest in these women, what would they be discovering at that exhibit that would relate uh, to our subject matter today? So the exhibition in Parliament, Voice and Vote, Women's Place in Parliament, covers the story of women in the UK Parliament over the last 200 years. Mm-hmm. So although the reason to have it is, of course, the uh, centenary of the vote, actually that's a hook to hang on, a much larger story, mm-hmm. because uh, women have always been involved with Parliament, long before they could vote, long before they be- could become MPs. They were lobbying, they were influencing, they were visiting, they were watching debates, they were giving evidence to committees. And so we trying to tell the story of that from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So the exhibition falls into four parts, which recreate historic spaces used by women. And the first one is called the ventilator. Mm-hmm. And this is a space that women used to have to watch parliamentary debates from. Before 1834, if you were a woman and you visited the House of Commons and you wanted to see what was going on, you had to go all the way up into the attic and peer through a hole in a ventilator and watch debates down sort of maybe 100 foot below you with a very limited view and a train to listen to what was being said down below. Uh, The conditions were terrible because it was ventilation shaft, so foul smells rose up from the chamber below. It must have been very stuffy and uncomfortable. But if you're a woman, you're politically engaged, you wanted to find out what was happening, that's the only thing you could do. And so our exhibition Mm -hmm. is uh, going to try and recreate the idea of the ventilator space so you can visit, put your head through a hole, and we've got some historic debates (laughs) that have been recorded and acoustically modelled for us by the University of York. Oh, wow. So hopefully we can give people an idea about what it would have sounded like uh, to the women up there who possibly could have heard better than you might think because they write about what they heard in their letters and diaries at the time and comment on the performances of the MPs. So they must have been able to hear, you know, at least something. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and you can think about what it makes you feel to uh, have to go up to the attic and peer through a ventilator. You know, does it make you feel included? <laughs> right. I don't think so. Yeah. Part two is called the cage. So we move from ventilator to cage. Mm-hmm. And so this we're now post-1834 in the age of the suffragists in the mid-19th century onwards, the peaceful campaigners for the vote and the suffragettes, the militant campaigners from the early 20th century. They had to watch debates in Parliament from the ladies' gallery. So this is an improvement on the ventilator because it is at least a purpose-built gallery. But it was separate from the men and it was set high up above the speaker's chair, very steep view and heavy metal grills were placed over the window. These were put there deliberately to stop the male MPs from seeing women watching them. It created a harem effect where the women could see out, but the men couldn't see in. Mm. Um, And the grills made the whole space very hot, stuffy, difficult to see, difficult to hear and became both a physical and a metaphorical symbol of women's exclusion from Parliament. Part three of the exhibition brings us on to the story that we've been talking about with uh, the early women MPs, and it's called The Tomb, because the first lady members room uh, was nicknamed The Tomb by Ellen Wilkinson, who was one of the early uh, Labour women MPs, because it was so grim and foreboding, like a Victorian school mom's room, it was described as. It had one coat hook for them all to share, um, <laughs> unsympathetic sofas, not oh. enough desks and so on. And so we've got some actual furniture from Parliament's historic furnishing collections, oh, wow. uh, which uh, exhibition visitors will be able to sit on and flick through some correspondence during Astor's post bag and mm. pick up the phone and listen to Ellen Morkison talking about the tomb, that kind of thing. And we'll tell the story also of women in the House of Lords there, but women couldn't sit there until 1958. So we're marking uh, 60 years of that, and we'll tell that story there too. And then finally, uh, you'll end up uh, in space number four in our exhibition in the chamber, which brings the story up to date. Women are now in the Commons, in the Lords, presiding over both houses in the highest positions of power, um, both in Parliament as the Speaker of the House of Commons and the Lords Speaker in the House of Lords. Of course, we've also now had two women Prime Ministers and women in most of the other sort of our highest positions of government. 
So I generally find that when people know more about the challenges faced by these women not that long ago and realise how hard fought these battles were and how recently these rights were won, then people are then much more likely to use the rights themselves. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Mari, I'd like to share with you what apparently was Nancy Astor's uh, favorite quotation of Mary Baker Eddy. And this comes from her work, Science and Health, with Key to the Scriptures. It relates to our conversation today, and, and it's, quote, One infinite God good unifies men and nations, constitutes the brotherhood of man, ends wars, fulfills the scripture, love thy neighbor as thyself, annihilates pagan and Christian idolatry, whatever is wrong in social, civil, criminal, political, and religious codes, equalizes the sexes, annuls the curse on man, and leaves nothing that can sin, suffer, be punished, or destroyed. End of quote. In terms of that idea of equality of the sexes being something that had a real spiritual purpose and religious impetus uh, behind it. Just be curious from your standpoint as an archivist and a historian, what is the legacy of that vision? Yes, I, th- I think the spiritual angle is something not only with the first women MPs, but also the suffrage campaigners that we tend to overlook today because people maybe just don't understand it and don't realise how important it was to some of the campaigners. Mm-hmm. For example, one of the most important suffragette campaigners in this country was Emily Wilding Davison, who famously died following a protest at the Epsom Derby in 1913. Mm-hmm. And one of her very strong motivations was spiritual, and she writes about it very passionately in her letters. She really felt that what she was doing was God's work. I'm sure this uh, goes on into the age of the early women MPs. Another of the early women MPs was uh, Edith Picton Turberville, who was a Labour MP. Mm-hmm. Um, she was around the same time as Astor, and she um, believed that there should be women priests in the Church of England, which is something that didn't happen until the 1990s here. But way back in the 1920s and indeed earlier, she and some other women believed that women should be allowed to preach on equal terms with, with men in the church. It was seen as something extremely radical um, mm-hmm. in the 1920s. Indeed, it's taken. It's only in really quite recent years that equality has been achieved in this area. But yes, I think it's something we tend to forget about today, and it's nice to be reminded sometimes that it was important. Thank you for listening to part one of Among the First to Stand, Christian Science and Women in Parliament. We invite you to look at a Christian Science Monitor article from December 2nd, 1919. It gives a vivid account of Viscountess Nancy Astor taking the oath of office as the first woman member of parliament. You can access the article from a link on this webpage or through the info tab on your podcast app. Please join us for part two with Robin Harrigan. With Robin, we'll delve deeper into the stories of these three early women parliamentarians, Nancy Astor, Margaret Winteringham, and Thelma Caslett Keir. Robin will also discuss her visit to the exhibition Voice and Vote, Women's Place in Parliament, as it relates to her scholarship. Robin has a Master's of Theology and Church History from King's College London. I'm Jonathan Eder, Programs Manager at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2018.